The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. Hello and welcome to the Verso Podcast. My name is Eleanor Penny. Our regular show is on break right now, but in the meantime, I am delighted to bring you some bonus content. This week, Esther Leslie and Stuart Jeffries explore the life, legacy and fiction of Walter Benjamin, an author, critic, philosopher and leading light of 20th century thought. He was born in 1892 in Berlin and he died in 1940 at Port Bou on the French-Spanish border when he was on the run from Nazi terror. He was living and writing in a time of massive political upheaval and rapid technological change and his wide-ranging body of work draws on Marxism, mysticism, poetry, literary criticism and beyond. His fiction writing tangles with city living, sex, work, gambling, fortune-telling to name just a few. The author and critic John Berger once said that Walter Benjamin was the interlocutor of all the demons and angels of storytelling, and this is why he knew its endless secrets. On this episode, Esther and Stuart interrogate the dreamscapes, travel logs, fantasies and riddles of Walter Benjamin's stories. Esther Leslie is a lecturer in English and Humanities at Birkbeck College London. She's the author of Walter Benjamin, Overpowering Conformism, and she sits on the editorial boards of Historical Materialism, Radical Philosophy and Revolutionary History. Stuart Jeffries is a journalist and author whose work has appeared in The Guardian, The Spectator, The Financial Times and The London Review of Books. His books include Everything, All the Time, Everywhere, How We Became Postmodern and Grand Hotel Abyss, The Lives of the Frankfurt School. Together with Sam Dolbear, they edited the collection The Storyteller, Tales Out of Loneliness, which brings together some of Walter Benjamin's best imaginative writing. It's recently been republished by Verso Books, featuring illustrations by the artist Paul Klee. They talked about folk tales, revolution, the writer's relationship with women, and what he'd make of new media technology. Perhaps we could start by talking about the idea of stories and where stories fit within Benjamin's or Benjamin's broader um, set of thinking. It's it's great to come across some of these pieces which I hadn't re- read before. Just the, the short, pithy, not well, gnomic little stories which have a great sort of narrative propulsion. Um, he's just a beautiful writer. I, I, it's, it's just one thing I wanted to say about him. He's a beautiful writer, but. The other thing that strikes me is he's writing a lot of these stories when he seems to be, and the, the title, but the subtitle bears this out, Tales Out of Loneliness. He's on his own a lot, in, in, and he seems to be a very solitary person. Um, but he's also very, even, you know, he doesn't seem a clubbable person at all. Um, and yet he's got incredible networks of friends who he's writing to and he's writing about. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah I've, that, that's one thing. I find interesting. I mean, it's part of the nature of the life of the writer to be solitary, I mm. suppose, in a sense, to sit there and write. But he's also a great exponent of the art of letter writing to the extent to which the last book that he publishes, um, which is published by a Swiss publisher, I think, um, is um, letters from men and women of you know, the, the 18th and 19th century. Um, and he, he calls it polemically German, 
German people because he's trying to establish this kind of alternative tradition of a Germany that has been utterly lost at the moment when he writes that book as it's fallen to Nazism and so on or curates that book. So he's fascinated in the letter form. The letter's interesting because it's both a solitary activity but you're writing it for somebody else to read it. So it is part of a sort of delayed dialogue and gives a window onto these networks that he was involved with. And he, you know, I mean, there are six volumes of the collected letters in in German, and that's not even all of them, you know. So it's this sort of constant activity of his to write to Schulem or Schoen or uh, Brecht or... Adorno or Gretel Karplus and, and so on. So there are also these these networks. But yeah, I, I guess what comes out of the collection of storyteller is um, is meditations on being being alone, experiencing things alone. Um, and then at the moment when he comes to write these stories, many of them are sort of refracted through the idea of someone telling a story to someone else or a, a, a narrative within a narrative, these strange sort of framing devices. So even to be alone is always, in a way, to evoke a listener, I guess, or, or someone who, who needs to, to hear the story. So that produces a kind of network. And that really connects with why he was drawn, I guess, to, to work in radio, because that is that sort of intimate, you know, one-to-one contact. You know, it's a very intimate medium. It's not like television, I suppose, which is more of a, a communal experience, or at least that's the idea of it. You know, it was a, certainly in Britain it was conceived of as being this sort of national unifying medium, whereas radio can be both more intimate and, um, yeah, more expressive and more personal and... Certainly a lot of the writings he did for radio feel like that to me. Mm. Although, again, there's that weird ambivalence. We have a lovely little um, story in here mm. sort of on the minute, which is... Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a know, great story. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure it's based on his experience of going into the Frankfurt radio station. You know, and this man, you know, he's broadcasting his programme. And he looks up at the clock and thinks he's only got... Um, or he thinks he's gone too fast and he hasn't got enough of his papers left to read and so he sort of stretches everything out with these long long words and pregnant pauses and then he realises he's misread the, the station this, clock. Yeah, and the second hand rather than the minute hand he's looking yeah. at. And then, you know, finds out afterwards his friend tells him that the, the radio sort of broke down anyway during transmission. But it yeah. so brings out that thing that you're both alone you know it's a lonely presentation and you can only fantasize all these potential yeah. audiences that you have but so it, it, it is both sort of you know you're very intimate and he says within that story you know the station manager tells him imagine you're speaking to just one person mm. you know being beamed into their living room as they sit there with their headphones on or next to their new loudspeaker um and and so it it, it and it's transitional at that stage because pe- people often used to or sometimes would be reading the scripts along with the person yeah. who's reading it out to them. So this strange kind of communion between listening and reading and all of that. But, yeah, it, 
essentially one's one's on one's own confronted by a potentially sort of demonic or torturous <laughs> technology. Well, there's also, you know, as, as a jobbing hack, I really identified with that idea. Well, you've got to write to length, you've got to hit the mark, you've got to finish it on time, otherwise there's going to be dead air or, or more likely, you know, if you're overwritten, you're going to get your piece hacked and, and butchered. And he, he's, you know, he's, he's approaching this as he, he did a lot of, sort of what, what I'm, I'm calling, you know, hack work and inverting commas because a lot of the writing he did, short form writing he did for newspapers is beautifully written. Mm-hmm. But also he, he is a professional journalist, you know, professional, professional, again, unclubbable freelance journalist. He wasn't really on the staff of anything as far as I'm aware mm-hmm. of the magazines he briefly set up. Um, he, he, he's, he's talking all the time. He, we, I'm aware of him, not just as, you know, somebody who, who, who's sort of thinking about um, the audience, also sort of thinking about the people he's got to write for and how he's going to serve them in a way. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, you know, the, at one point he dismissed, I think, in a letter, his, his radio broadcast as a kind of hack work or, yeah. or, you know, the work that you do to make money in order to eat um and and it feels like he 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 dismisses them but as you say in fact you know his radio broadcasts are extraordinary they're they're sort of mm. miniaturized renditions of so many of his his bigger and sometimes more complex themes but i think it's true that once he was unable to get an academic career with his you know, habilitation that mm. he needed to teach, rejected, uh, and he realised he was going to have this kind of freelance jobbing life, and then that all intermeshes with political turmoil, turmoil in Europe, and you know he has to sort of flee and try to find places to exist. You know, he he gives himself over to that jobbing life, and I think that leads to his strong identification and interest in Baudelaire similarly mm, mm. as someone who you know s- sells their their columns or their poems to to the press or to publishers and this great awareness of a sort of commodification of the task of writing and having yeah. to write to deadlines and to particular specifications and radio is just a very extreme version of that in in terms of the timings but also the whole sort of hustle of of just trying to get these jobs in the in the <laughs> first place you know and i think he's very much um tied up with that he's also quite you know he, he accepts the master narrative of of intellectual german intellectuals at the time which is that journalism is this impoverished language you know that that's what karl kraus was talking about mm. you know ironically but all these people mm. worked in journalism so there, there's a kind of level of um not exactly self-loathing but a sort of they're, they're doing things which they're in a, in a part in a way are beneath them and yet at the same time are really important to them um it, you know he, the, these writings aren't just to, to me at least they don't read as just things he's done for money they're they're, they're beautifully turned and they're beautifully written mm. so there's a, there's a kind of interesting paradox there about they're working in forms that they kind of disdain and it, 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 the, other, the other thing that really strikes me as well is is, is when we talk about his loneliness and um, you know the fact that he didn't get he, he didn't get academic tenure or anything like that, that's partly we've got to talk a bit a bit about I suppose the fact that he's a Jew and, and he's in, in, you know the, the, for for a long time when he was a y- young man he, he didn't expect to be able to teach I don't think you know or get mm-hmm. tenure because Jews weren't allowed to do so at that at that moment 
later on in the Weimar Republic, I think you know, I'm right in saying there was a short period where Jews were allowed to, you know, get tenure. He never did because his habilitation thesis was incredibly, insanely <laughs> rejected, you know. And so I wonder what his personality is like, really. Is, is he a, somebody who, because of his Jewish identity, because of the exclusive nature of um, German society um, and the anti-Semitic, the latent anti-Semitic um, nature of German society, which becomes less than latent later on, is he somebody who, who's almost forced to become an outsider? Or was it it's an imponderable question? Or was it something that's about his personality beyond, beyond his Jewish identity? Mm-hmm. Sure, those two things interplay in a way, don't they? But I mean, I think it's interesting in his early years, he's around the youth movement, yeah. which is a sort of much broader movement, uh, you know, as, uh, imagining sort of the coming society as led by progressive youth who've shaken off the militarism of, of Wilhelmine society and all of mm. that. So that's a sort of broader opening to you know an alternative germany um and you know at this point when he's a young man he's looking back to these longer literary uh traditions and they're very influenced by ibsen and all, all, all sorts of um uh, impulses and and uh um a, a a sort of free-thinking boarding school that his parents mm. sent him to. All of that, I think, occasions him to think quite strongly about the intersections of German life and German traditions, Jewish life, Jewish traditions, and whether there's something that specifically German Jewishness or Jewish Germanness, and and so on, and and a whole kind of reaching out, sort of much more broadly i suppose to imagine a future but he has often also been seen i mean in is it susan sontag's phrase sort of saturnine um Mm. you know that he's dogged by a personal melancholy that's just part of his you know myopic uh sense (laughs) of of being in the world so his marginalization it, you know, is socially occasioned by anti-Semitism, the fact that he, yeah. he couldn't study for his PhD where he wanted to because of these, you know, closed numbers of Jews who could be accepted to mm. the university and all of those things, uh, external factors, also just his own burgeoning progressive politics, you know, means that that youth movement, you know, wants to break with the Germany that has been, just as the sort of modernist impulses want to break with the Germany that has been, and that's a sort of self-made but voluntarily chosen cutting off, and then there's maybe the the internal one of personality that you yeah. just can't help. I mean, he breaks from from his bourgeois background, you know, the you know the West End of Berlin, and his his businessman father, as as do you know, lots of the, the, the people who went on to found Frankfurt School. You know, they're very often sons, always sons of um, well, wealthy businessmen who rejected that that way of living. And and it, but with him, it sort of induces him into an almost picaresque lifestyle where he becomes quite impecunious. He, he's never really relying on institutional support, living off his his wits and quite solitary you know he, he makes himself mm-hmm. into somebody who 
And again, I think it's worth, worth thinking about, I suppose, why he becomes somebody who's interest, really interested in leaving Berlin, leaving Germany, um, and travelling to these different places, while at the same time ha- having a sort of sense of... This is what I get from, from, from him and from a lot of the Frankfurt School as well, is that they're, they're, they're this, almost like the, the, the people who are safeguarding a kind of notion of German culture mm. at a time when it's being abused and you know mobilized by the nazis in a rather degraded way mm. i mean that, that comes out a lot later on with people like Horkheimer who, who explicitly see when they're in in los angeles in exile they see themselves as you know um they can, you know their, their work is a message in a bottle to future generations really but also you know when people like thomas mann and all those people are in exile they're, they're thinking of themselves as Safeguarding a German culture which has mm. been disabused, and he's part. He's part unwittingly because he just he dies in 1940. He's he's part of that, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I mean Thomas Mann regularly comes to the BBC, doesn't he, and does these lectures yeah. about you know the the other Germany, the Germany that that should be. It's funny when you said living off his wits, I thought you were going to say living off his wife because there is <laughs> also right. a yeah, little yeah, bit right, of. Right. A, because he does live off his wits, but he, it is also important that even after her divorcing him, you know, he he gets these handouts, and Dora, yeah. you know, does um, you know enable him to sort of try to to sustain himself, and that's just all part of that extremely precarious situation of. Um, which does make it very canny, you know. When he's in exile in Paris, he's sort of, you know, working out if, you know, if he should um, go to to this particular conference because they're going to give kind of free food and that would sort of be helpful for a while, or should he go and hang out in the library because at least he's warm there? And it's, you know, that real kind of yeah. getting to know the city in the way he writes in the arcades project. That, that in a way, if you're condemned to poverty and the streets you make the streets into your your living room your vestibule your this and your that you you learn how to use it because you have um no other choice and he does become very uh good at that but i mean while i think he wants to unbury an increasingly lost progressive liberal german tradition i think he also Mm. wants to defamiliarize and so Mm. you know there's a point at which he writes i don't want to write about germany i want to talk about you know the french tradition or going to moscow and trying to understand what's what's happening in russia all of that um work i think it, in some ways, it explains something very fundamental in him, which is this idea of wanting to dislodge from habit and to open oneself up to experience in the manner of a child. So it's very striking mm. when he's in Moscow and gets quite excited by the idea of even having to learn to walk again on icy streets, <laughs> like a child <laughs> learns to walk, and it, and it's or going to. Ibiza or Naples yeah. and you know it's that is also a strong German tradition from Goethe and everyone else of going south and enjoying the special light and so on but it but it also just 
opens up to him how space can be differently inhabited, the porosity between mm. public and private, all these things can be retabulated in ways that are so different from what he calls something like the the race course of, of Berlin or these sort of, you know, stripped back, super modern spaces that have lost any um, uh, relationship, say, to, to nature or to contingent and arbitrary form. And he's always looking for these other spaces of these sort of curly cues where experience can expand. And sometimes I think that involves rejecting um, the Germany that uh, that rejected him as well. Yeah, but he's also this you know, Oedipal thing, I suppose, because you know, he's rejecting the, the world that his father created, I suppose. And, you know, when he refers to their villa as a, you know, lying in a, um, I think something along the lines of a gilded ghetto, you know, uh, held on a lease, you know, which is mm. horrible to thought that it's probably a very short lease, you know. Um, it's, that, that's all really, really pertinent and powerful. I just wanted to ask you a bit about the um, his relationship with women because uh, you know he, he comes across sometimes as fairly misogynistic and fairly kind of exploitative of women, and yet he seems to have lots of affairs. He treats his wife fairly appallingly, I think we can say. And um, uh, yeah, he, he, and, and also really interestingly, I think all the lots of the photos of him were taken by women. So mm. there are women in his life all the time. What's your take on his yeah. relationship with them? He seemed to have strong friendships with women. I mean, you know, he writes in some ways much more, certainly more intimately um, and uh, extensively to Gretel Karplus, who's mm. the wife of Adorno. He's so influenced by um, Helene Grunt, or uh, mm. the wife of Franz Hessel, but a, um, a fashion theorist, fashion journalist. Um, and I think what's interesting, I, I wouldn't call him misogynist. <laughs> I, think, I think he, he sort of falls wildly in love with women and, and himself talks about the way in which they then utterly change him. So, you know, mm. he says this about the, the Latvian theatre makers, mm. Latsis. Um, you know, she sort of re-engineers him in some way and and together they write and, you know, she, and she's pretty spiky and sort of very ironic about him and quite you know ridicules him in in certain ways that clearly you know there there was an exchange of something mm. between them but i do think there's there's something quite strange about the whole circle from which benjamin comes and having spent the past few years looking uh, together with Sam Dolbear at, at Ernst Schoen, mm. who was Benjamin's best friend from childhood and really the person who was an interlocutor sort of right the way through um, his life from adolescence onwards. Now they came from the same circle in Berlin, mm. interested in progressive politics, interested in Nietzsche and Baudelaire and all of this stuff, but what they effectively do their whole life long is sort of swap partners 
between each other <laughs> and everyone falls in love with the same girl and then she then marries you know the brother of someone she was once in love with and you know all, all sorts of things like that happen there's something about and maybe maybe that is connected to this idea of a certain kind of isolation because of their high-minded intellectualism mm. because of their very self-conscious sort of sense of who they were they could in a way only fall in love with each other and certainly back in contrast with lots of the other you know frankfurt school critical theorists he's quite a utopian you know mm. and in terms of technology you know mm. he, he he embraces it um Embrace it in a childlike way, I think. You know, what you were saying about about his childlike, you know, the, the openness to experience and also to the, to the transformative nature of experience mm. and the transformative nature of what, say, cinema could do or, or, what, or what radio does and the idea that, you know, these are technologies of these kind of, you know, in modern terms, those sort of trans, transhuman prostheses which are going to extend our ranges of perception mm. and all that's kind of liberating and revolutionary and... and, and and all that contrasts so markedly with the way in which Adorno and Horkheimer write about culture. They just see it as this industry which is actually just about um, creating a dominating... You know, Hollywood cinema is, not, is never for them mm. anything other than a machine to keep people in their place. It's not liberating, it's not experientially enriching, it's the opposite. Yeah. Whence, whence is utopianism, you know? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because for, for the rest of them, yeah, it's so much that, that the machine is rational and it's instrumentalizing and yeah. um just yeah delimits the capacity for us to have experiences and in part you know benny mean affirms that i mean in in his writings on experience and poverty he you know he he just speaks about war technologies as sort of muting us and and shattering our capacities so you know we, we acknowledge this kind of mortal battle between human and machine but the way out of that is not to uh, dismiss it and just you know stay with our pure un untouched cultural materials but sort of plow through it ourselves and that's when he talks about Mickey Mouse and Adolf yeah. Loos and Paul Clay, these are all sort of figures who've somehow absorbed technology in into themselves and then rearticulate it in surreal or absurd um, or honest ways in order to give us the basis to sort of build ourselves up again in in partnership with it because it doesn't disappear. And one of the things I love in Benjamin is his idea mm. of, of sort of second technology, that, you know, this is all just a process. So first technology comes and, and bombs us and straps us to the machine. So, you know, we have to work to its rhythm and so on. But then we can sort of, you know, get beyond that into a second wave of technology that that instead of sowing bombs, sow seeds from the skies and, you know, instead of strapping us to the machine's rhythms, I don't know, maybe lets us go while it gets on with automating production and things like that. He's got a, yeah, a, a capacity or a desire, at least, to to see that and to see that through. But I don't know where that comes from except mm. potentially i mean w one of the things that did fa 
fascinate him was surrealism mm. in a way that it did not Adorno, who was very dismissive of it. And I, I suppose I wonder if, you know, effectively it's a kind of Dada surrealist take on um, the kind of ludicrous nature of what technology <laughs> does to yeah. us, but then somehow we can, yeah, take the ludicrous, take it into the realm of play and uh, and make something else of it. Because whenever he thinks of technology, Benjamin thinks of, of play and this this little word Spielraum, mm. a sort of room for manoeuvre, room for play, wiggle room. Um, yeah, so it, it, and that again goes back to his ideas of childhood and, where, yeah. and whereby he thinks, you know, for children, they're born into a world where technology is just a kind of nature for them because they haven't seen it come. It's just part of their world, so they work with it. And I think maybe he's always trying to get back to that and put the best face on it. That's a, I mean, it's a really interesting take because the usual narrative with, with, with technological innovation is it starts off as promising liberation and then... You know, um, all that gets destroyed. So, for example, you think of uh, like John Bronson's book about um, social media. You know, um, you've been publicly shamed. Starts off as this incredible utopian moment. It's going to transform us. We're all going to be empowered to express ourselves, and then it becomes the internet. You know, then it becomes the sort of techno giants that we know today. So, what's fascinating about what you just said is like he's he's flipping the whole the, the whole narrative, Benjamin. He's, he's saying that well. You know, that actually the machine needn't control us, or mm. and that's what's utopian in a way. Yeah, and in a way, I suppose it's just a kind of Marxist point as well, yeah. isn't it? Because in his famous work of art in the age of yeah. technical reproducibility, <laughs> he talks about um, you know the 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 ways in which. Um, yeah, the development of machinery is impeded by the relations of production, you know, and there's going to be that contradiction and that tension. Mm. So he sort of talks about capitalism's kind of violation of the apparatus as if this machinery, you know, could in a way be left to its own devices and and develop it itself and, and we, we would adjust to that and it would make it would improve conditions somehow under its own steam quite literally but but capitalism keeps you know locking it back into profit motive and production mm. of profit and therefore the necessary social relations that that come from that and i think he's sort of drawn to that idea and then i think takes it that really interesting direction in the epilogue to the work of art essay mm. where he's thinking about two types of representation and this sort of violation of the apparatus to show the Aryan German masses, you know, under Hitler, sort of on on screen. They've made an imprint on celluloid. It looks as if they've come to representation, but actually they're just being mobilised as a material... Um, mm -hmm. to to be seen, to be seen in their sort of anonymous collectivity and their shaping by power and it's no form of actual political representation um, because the, the social relations within which that occurs, sort of capitalist-fascist relations, is, is one that can't allow um, them any genuine articulation because that would involve abolishing those very social relations. That seems to connect with with how the culture industries work, work through by um, 
Adorno and Horkheimer when they're thinking about um, when I mean, they make that explicit kind of comparison between Ufa, you know, some of the propaganda films. I don't know if it's Reefen style, who, but you know, so, so, certainly Nazi propaganda films, and Charlie Chaplin. You know, there's a sort of for them, you know, there's an impo- impoverishment of it, in terms of experience that comes from exposing yourself to those things, and um, that's where their sort of anti-utopianism just you know, just completes completely depressed sense, cynical sense of. Uh, how technology is going to be imposed on the masses to control them comes from. I think it's just very easy for them to map, I think, you know, what what they saw in Germany or what they saw as propaganda industry in Germany and, and see that as being replicated somehow in Hollywood. I wonder if Benjamin would have seen it that way, had he lived or had he got made it to exile, you know, in, in, in the States. Mm. Yeah, what do you think would have experienced the same extreme alienation sort of under the blue skies of... <laughs> yeah. Los Angeles and just sort of felt I mean, you know, most certainly his his good friend Brecht would have told him about, yeah. you know, I every day I go to the marketplace yes. to sell my lies and come home so disappointed and so on. You know, he they would have I think he he would have taken that stance as well, I suppose, that this is all about a a chopping up and commodification yeah. um, of ideas, you know, including, you know, poetry and everything else. But I don't know, he might, he might have found um, some other kind of accord with it uh, as well, although he was absolutely horrified at, at the prospect, really, of of leaving Europe. I mean, that's one of the great imponderables, isn't it? But, I mean... You know, he. I don't think he wanted to be in an English-speaking realm at all, <laughs> really. Yeah, I mean, when it, there's no sort of happy story really of any of those exiles, or is there? But I was sort of thinking about Adorno in Oxford and how he hated it, and uh, and uh, how alienated he felt in, in in Los Angeles. And at the same time, they had something which I think they inherited from Benjamin, which is this kind of commitment to. Seeing themselves as safeguarding, yeah, we've talked about it before. The you know German culture would would Benjamin have been more open to um, you know the oppositional voices that um, that might be inherent in sort of certain kinds of popular popular culture that you know Adorno and Horkheimer and I think Marcuse really didn't really get you know notoriously. Adorno had a tin ear for jazz, and yet he was in in the West Coast, and he was getting a sort of. He could have heard these great musicians. He could have really experienced it, and yet he 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 was almost, I think, poisoned against jazz by what he heard in and what he perceived it as being when he was in Germany. I think it's like the German jazz bands, most of whom probably were white, and he, he didn't really understand. I don't think what the social movements. Of or what, what, what social critique popular culture could involve, I think you know he couldn't understand. Whereas I, I kind of have this romantic notion that maybe Benjamin would have got it more. He would, would have been able to. Would have been more open to mm. that kind of experience. I think the potential was there. I mean, even in the w- work of our essay, he talks about you know a, a public that's sort of reactionary in front of a surrealist work of art mm. because you know they feel they can't understand it or it's not good painting or something absolutely embraces Charlie Chaplin or embraces 
um, Mickey Mouse cartoons and effectively, you know, it's the same formal things going on. It's the context within which that happens and that is different and whether one feels that the work is made for one or whether one is excluded from it. So, Hmm. I mean, I think he he might have had more of an opening onto interesting formal um, inventiveness. Um, But I think, you know, for all of that lot, they were uh, completely admired in certain kind of strictures from the past. So there's one time when Benjamin is doing his hashish experiments, I think those drug experiments that any kind of, you know, uh, poetically tuned um, European of the time seemed to to go through. And he sort of, you know, realises he's tapping his foot to music. And this is sort of a bit of a shock (laughs) because you don't really respond in a bodily way to music. And it takes a huge hit of hashish to kind of release (laughs) your, your organs to to do that. So I think they're just, they are very tied up um, in ways that, that may be maybe hard to imagine now. Oh, it's quite hard to imagine. I remember re- reading that uh, Marcos was given a, a copy of a Rolling Stones album when he was, you know, the doyen of the, of the new left and, and uh, he completely freaked out. What, what is this? Because it didn't compute, really. And I interviewed Angela Davis and she was talking about how, you know, because I was saying... For you, because you studied with, with Marcuse and you, and, and you venerated, or, or you studied with Adorno as well, you kind of venerated Benjamin, read, read, read a lot of their work. What could, he, what could their sort of criticisms of popular culture, and particularly African-American popular culture, um, have meant to you? And, and she, she was quite, I mean, she's fairly defensive in the sense that she said, uh, you know, they, they had this sort of German high cultural formation, which she thought they might be able to... They're starting to get beyond, or Marcuse, at least, was starting to get beyond. But not very much, I don't think. You know, they didn't, because they, they, they were caught up in... Perhaps because the historical circumstance of, of, of thinking that they're defending German... German I mean, this is my idea, I think. them defending German culture against the depredations of Nazism and what Nazism did to Germany. And what Thomas... You know, what Thomas Mann's perspective is... I mean, his BBC broadcast was very much... This is what we're standing out for. What German, German Germany is, what the Nazis are doing is disgusting and, and, and repellent. So maybe because of that preoccupation, they couldn't really expose themselves or try to grasp or understand empathetically what popular culture was or American popular culture was, and, and saw it in a rather disdainful way. Although I do kind of think now, all the time I think we've been talking about that phrase that Marcusa had about the great refusals been going through my mind, which is that the working classes were a disappointment to Marxists. Ultimately, they didn't deliver what you know the Frankfurt School hoped for. Marcusa had a new faith in subaltern groups, by which he meant, I think, you know, African Americans and feminists and so on, to lead to some sort of liberation. And actually, that's 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 what they needed to think about that and how how popular culture can be used to for those is, is being used and can be used by those subaltern groups to um, ferment some sort of change in society. Mm. I kind of think that Benjamin would have been into that, you know, mm. more. Yeah, I mean, he's cut off so early, really. Isn't yeah, he? right. Dying it's, it's, in nineteen forty, yeah. sort of at the start of war. 
before all of that post-war rearrangements um, comes into being and he can only sort of participate posthumously but it is very telling that in 1968 these oppositional groups in Europe you know, ranging from Baden-Meinhof mm-hmm. group, the terror group through student movement and, and so on, all um, grasp to Benjamin, find find it really find something really important there. Do these posters famously with him with a Kalashnikov in one hand and a <laughs> joint in the other, you know, armed struggle and and drugs, you know, he's somehow our watchword and you know, and a great emphasis on that those writings of his that really are about um I suppose politics of culture, you know, mm. writings like the author as producer yeah. and, and the artwork essay and thinking about the possibilities of reproduction, thinking about the photocopier as revolutionary tool, <laughs> all of these sorts of things, because we get the means to reproduce our own ideas, circumventing the publishing presses and the television, the mass media and these institutions that gatekeep yeah. and you know, and it is to to Benjamin that that is turned for both for kind of um, strategies as to how how to communicate you know, and the, the forms of distribution and so on and also you know for, for some of the content of that so when he's thinking with Asiolatsis about proletarian theatre or um, photo montage a la John Hartfield and so on ben- yeah. Benjamin allows a, a whole set of oppositional and new groups, new social movements to um, to rethink that stuff in his absence. Had he been there, I I don't know how that would have have changed things. But when when he one of his first sort of political organisations was when he was a student. He was a student leader campaigning against Ger- German universities being these sort of you know producing the next next generations of you know mandarins really so he he he's he's very much opposed to this instrumental conception this nationalist in- instrumental conception of what education could be and i think that's in, in a lot a lot of people who who in the student movement in 68 were of the same mindset that that's what was happening again adorno adorno at that point you know um is in a difficult position because he's uh he while a great critical theorist and, you know, poised in, I think, 1968 to sort of start his lecture series on, you know, an introduction to dialectical um, thinking, um, he calls in the police because his lectures are being stopped, you know, um, by by student sit-ins. Students who, you know, naively perhaps, but nonetheless ardently felt that tertiary education was being mobilised yet again to just serve a capitalist, you know, Industry or to serve the bureaucracy, the things that they didn't think, you know, education was for. You know. And it was through him that they learnt that critique. And right, that was right. the irony, That's wasn't it? Irony. So yeah, yeah. He's the sorcerer's apprentice, you know, but he's become an institution. They write that on the blackboards. Yeah. Adorno as an institution is dead, you know. So yeah. they are speaking in the name of the living Adorno, but that that's that's, that's right. the one who's producing his his theory. In some ways, in in opposition, op- opposition to Nazism, opposition to American capitalism as he understands it, and so on. But but suddenly he becomes in in that period, yeah, the the representative again of of order and yeah, 
and he's going on the radio uh, speaking about education after Auschwitz and you know how we have to teach mm. differently but it, it seems as if he's not really um, taking his own words seriously I suppose um, and he's certainly not advocating sort of going onto the streets with Molotov cocktails and so on. But Dan, oh, this, is, this is a bizarre thing but what would you have done? <laughs> you've just started you've been working all summer on this incredible lecture series you're going to be doing about the introduction to critical thinking mm. and then suddenly you know a bunch of these snotty students come in and they just sit in you know yeah you'd be understandably cross but uh, on the other hand what would you i'm what? not sure i would have called them red fascists though, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. but, um, yeah i think it's uh it's a hard one we'd all like to think would we all like to think i'd like to think i would have somehow yeah I, opened up the institute and let them all sit there and we would have all, you know, d done our teachings and then eventually they would have wanted to go home to daddy <laughs> to get their clothes washed or something and it would have all dissipated. Yeah, yeah. Adorno was this great aphorist, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, Minima Morali, one of the reasons for reading it is because it's just so pithy and he's such a condensed, fabulous writer, you know. Marcuse apparently said of him that everything he wrote, pretty much, he could just sort of send it straight to the printer. You know, it was just sort of bang, he's really on the money. So in a way, you know, I don't like to sort of say this, but had he not died, he, he, he could have been in the Twitter sphere. In fact, there was this book that came out and it was called, it was just called Nine, and it's a picture of him on the front going like that. And it was just lots of his pithier comments about the nature of the culture industry, you know, anti-Semitism. The genesis of stupidity and, and you know probably his remarks about Auschwitz and all that sort of stuff so the the, the idea of uh, this is a crazy question I'm going to ask it anyway could any of these guys hack, have hacked it in, in, on Twitter and, and or would they have been temperamentally opposed or politically opposed to it while at the same time perhaps being temperamentally quite good at it mm. so I, re <laughs> I remember once um, I really wanted to issue a whole load of um, Frankfurt School Christmas crackers, which would have had, and either it would have had the Adorno phrases like, I mean, they sound better in, in German, I thought, es gibt keine just Leben im Falsch, and there is no right life lived in the, in the false, or they could have been sort of augmented to something like, es gibt kein richtiges Leben im Grolschen, so in Grolsch, the, which was the beer of choice at the time I was drinking, um, one can find no right life. There is there is something, yeah, pithy and sloganistic. I mean, people do that anyway, don't they? You have various, mm. uh, whether they are real people or bots, you know, tweeting out sort of the Adorno quote um, of of the day. Whether they would have found that a useful uh, mechanism? I mean, it's not a useful mechanism in the sense that it's just part of the the flurry on the surface that mm. only exists in order to feed the beast yeah. underneath it, which um, is now Elon Musk or, mm. and whatever it was before that, I guess. It, it's all just a kind of static, isn't it, that, that can't really or doesn't seem to, to organise and... Because organisation has to overcome the kind of fragmentation, I guess, that this relies on and mm. and that people become more and more aware of now that the, the social relations are much more 
open because we all saw how this fell into private hands for whatever reasons but you you sort of see or you you understand it basically as an economic vessel that may or may not fail at, at being economically prof profitable but and you have no control over it over what your thing appears next to or what advert or sponsored thing is is going to be thrust at you so mm. it it i i think for those reasons um they would have probably held it at a distance seeing it far too enmeshed in um capitalist structures as if yeah. Surkamp publishers or whoever else yeah. were not but you know it 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 at least feels like there's there's some distance between structures of economy and and the output whereas here it, it just feels like it's all collapsed in on itself what i mean would they have been interested in in the idea that um you know this this idea of self-performance and what is the real you know this you know at the same time this is performance of authenticity as well as performance is paradoxical and thing about performing one's real self when actually it's another mask and uh, all of that sort of self commodification that would have probably interested them i think i yeah i think it would have interested them i think it would have um that bleed between um you know the the self presentation sort of through the f filter through the you know extreme curation mm. of the self as as image then <laughs> bleeding back into a world in which you use whatever techniques you can in order to also make that your external reality because otherwise the sort of gulfs of of disappointment between online and offline life are too wide i, I just think all, all of that would have um, very much fascinated them probably driven adorno into some kind of overdrive sort of yeah you know thinking about the fantastical manipulation of of the surface of reality um and so on and, and it's sort of unbounded uh mediation i don't know how it works in academia now but certainly i remember when when, when social medias first started in, in and journalists were you know encouraged to uh, engage with it you know i remember being told that be really good if you set up a twitter handle and started to um engage with the, the below the line trolls and which felt like this massive time suck but also <laughs> not just that but it also felt really unpleasant and so as a, as a sort of techno luddite i i, I stepped away in a, in a rather sniffy way and in, in a sniffy way which i can imagine adorno being you know temperamentally suited to as well which is that i didn't i didn't want to i didn't want to perform myself and I also didn't think I could construct a persona successfully online that I would be happy to inhabit, you know. So it felt like the opposite of what Bowie did, you know, like Bowie just had you know, put, picked up these different masks. I felt like the, I'd, pick, I'd, I'd construct a mask and then it would just stick to my face, you know, you'd become this thing that you aren't. And I see it all the time now. I just see that people seem to have become the, a lot of the time on Twitter, become utterly monstrous. Maybe that's what they really were underneath, and it's just revealing what was repressed. Or more likely, you're encouraged to construct a persona which um, 
works online somehow and you can sell it better and it's more lucrative certainly with, with like you know journalism there's a period in which if you if you if you wrote articles um you the, 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 there was going to be an idea that you'd be paid more money you would get a, a performance benefit for uh, performance related pay based on the number of clicks you would get you know and that was that was considered as a, as a serious business model by lots of papers for a while something like that does happen surely throughout a lot of a lot of the way in which social media works now I and mean, i bet you know you, you you have to tweet probably because or maybe you don't have to tweet you tell me <laughs> you know probably it probably it probably it doesn't necessarily help you get tenure but it helps it helps help sort of publicize you and you have to perform yourself as a bit of a brand in order to mm. extol your you know cultural con your content or whatever you know mm. to some extent i mean i think that's um yeah i think these things are still sort of under negotiation or um but certainly um everyone i mean academics are using that sphere for self-promotion mm. aren't they um yeah but i mean you know some i, I think keep a sort of aristocratic distance <laughs> still but it does seem aristocratic i suppose if you do and we, we've all become yeah, like like Baudelaire hawking our wares sort of on, on the market or, you know, indirectly sort of on the market through managing the brand. It's, yeah, it's true. Is there anything to say, you know, would Ben Min have found anything defensible in, in social media? That would, he, would he conceivably have found it, you know, experientially enriching or...? I don't I mean, when you think back to his essay on the storyteller and he's yeah. juxtaposing sort of the fairy tale and the folk tale as these kind of conveyors of wisdom, which, you know, in some ways works itself into the novel, but the novel is essentially a bourgeois form yeah. about the sort of self-education, self-development of, of an individual. So, and then he thinks about the newspaper and all of its fragmentation, all of its little articles, little bits, things next to each other, none of which relates to each other. And really that is just... Know, an explanation or a description of of social media form TikTok, the sort of fifteen yeah. second, fifteen second, each one um, uh, different, and, and 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 by the time you've seen the next one, you've forgotten what the last one was, and this sort of endless, endless flow. So it's like that that structure of of the newspaper um, that he's describing, but absolutely, yeah, you know, maxed and amplified and you know he doesn't dismiss the newspaper as a realm uh, it might be you know a la Karl Krauss you know yeah. it's sort of the cliche and the phrase and it's manipulative and it's just sort of um, you know ends up confusing rather than informing us or information itself becomes mm. degraded and it's nowhere near wisdom but you know, I'd say that these are these are the times, you know, we we live in. So we have to sort of work through that, or see if if there are ways of of reinventing that. Which you know, he does see with Tretyakov and the Soviets mm. and the worker authored newspaper and and so on. So maybe he'd he'd find some kind of hinge into these these media forms. I do find it interesting that, you know, having a teenagers, myself, currently, one of the ways in which they find out about 
Benjamin Adorno <laughs> yeah. um, is through tweets or through book talk or through, yeah. um, you know, o online stuff or, or even YouTube videos and, you know, had one thrust at me uh, the other day, which was dealing with Neil Postman's yeah. uh, amusing ourselves to death, yeah. you know, and so that's all Walter Ong and McLuhan and, yeah. and so on. But, you know, and there's Benjaminian stuff in there. And these are, these are actually much longer form and probably only watched by, you know, certain kinds of uh, kids. But, it, you know, it's done in a really engaging way and, and it's self-reflecting back because this is what... It seems to me uh, a lot of the younger people are interested in is self-reflection in all its forms, self-reflection, their own self-reflection mm -hmm. through these media, but also how the media self-reflects on its own constitution. And, uh, you know, this this that's why Benjamin's still interesting to them because it's a, it's a reflection and a self-reflection on... on the capacity of genres and forms and modes of distribution. How old are your kids? Fifteen, just last week, and seventeen. Wow. I mean, you know, if they can talk that way, <laughs> at that age, they're steeped in those guys. It's fantastic. <laughs> but we're going to talk a bit about radio just uh, and, and just his perspective on what radio was and um, what is and its liberatory possibilities and... Uh, you know, just this, this idea, because you've written about Ernst Schoen recently, or you, you, you've got a book coming out to do with, with, with Schoen, who, you know, exiled, lived here and did a lot of stuff for the BBC. Would, would Benjamin have, have shared the kind of Rethian edicts that... One of the things that was supposed to be wonderful about the BBC and radio was that it would bring to the masses, in a, in a rather patrician sort of conceived way... Um, sort of serendipitous things which they wouldn't have otherwise encountered. You know, say you would turn on the radio and you'd hear some opera and you'd never heard opera before, that kind of thing. Um, and the idea is that perhaps that, that is, in an, in an age now, of, of uh, we're in our silos, we're in our echo chambers, that serendipity, which is worth defending perhaps, is lost. Um, would would Benjamin have thought he had been a Ruthian in that mm. sense? Probably not very. I I suspect not. In you know he it's Aunt Shern who gets Benjamin on, onto the radio. You know yeah. in the sort of mid twenties up until even the start of thirty three. Yeah. Um, you know doing all these it, it, extraordinary talks about um, the enigma, well, Casper Hauser yeah. or Berlin dialects or. You know the, uh, um, you know, an ironworks or a flood in Mississippi in 1927, or and these are all quite, you know, they're 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 off they're they're, you know, about catastrophes or they're about swindler types. You know, they're about the capacity to be deceived. You know, they're quite odd little lectures, stories that and and some of that work is also sort of working together with the uh, players in this new radio culture who are reading the equivalent of the radio times and writing in mm. and having their their compositions read out on the radio and you no know, Shern makes this possible for Benjamin and and it's sort of part of a um 
a moment of a kind of experimentalism where no one's quite sure what mm. this radio can be and, and what Schoen really wants to push and what Benjamin really likes is this idea that there is a radiophonic culture, you know, something that is made specifically for radio and can only take place through radio and it might involve sound effects or it might involve certain kinds of editing or, you know, cer certain kinds of, of recording or electronic instruments and all of those things. And I think that's an experimental interest that's there for, you know, 10 years under Weimar. Um, when Schoen comes to the BBC, he doesn't find that kind of experimental ground and it's uh although there are experiments and there is radical radio and there is interesting stuff but he can't really find a, a more curatorial and operative role so he becomes very much you know someone who's scribbling down uh what the nazis are broadcasting in order to um communicate that up the f food chain and mm. things like that um i think there's a kind of horror for Benjamin and others of of something that will come to be called middle brow culture and I think that would be the fear right, that right. the BBC is going to be that, yeah. you know issuing this this sort of yeah very Rethian consciously self improving culture yeah. but within sort of narrow parameters and, and never should it sort of smack of a kind of critique of um, the social. I mean, there there mm. are moments when I think it does it extraordinarily. You know, you and McCole splice documentaries sort of opening up onto sort of you know working life th things like that do 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 get through, but um, it it's not the general thrust I think of the station. I think that's why Shern finds it hard, and I can't. I can't quite imagine Benjamin doing the kind of lectures that he he did in Germany, but, you know, who knows? If he had been here, then he might have changed things as well. So, so, I mean, he wasn't know. very good at performing himself, really, for, for, for uh, his masters, you know, he, 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 all the way through from, like, German tra tragic drama, you know, rejected as a thesis because it wasn't really in the style that, that was demanded. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you know the, the the idea that he could have when when you come across his radio broadcasts, you just think these are wonderful. But I've no idea how they would fit into a radio culture now at all. Mm. No, and our no loss, you know. Yeah, and no idea how he would have performed them as well. You know, the, yeah. I mean, it is so frustrating that no one has ever come across any recording of yeah. these. So you you know we can't know how he would have um, read them. How radiophonic. He was, you know, he was fascinated by this idea of the radio voice and the intimacy of that going into people's living rooms and so on. But quite how his own one um, hit home is, is lost to us for now, at least. That was our episode this week. We delved into the life and literary influences of the great Walter Benjamin. You can find a film version of this discussion on the Verso Books YouTube page. And the book, The Storyteller, Tales Out of Loneliness, is out now and available wherever good books are sold. 
We'll be back soon with our regular programming. We're going to be talking about crypto ideology, occupied Palestine, the Haitian revolution, and loads more besides. In the meanwhile, I'd love to ask you for a little favor. If you're enjoying this podcast, please let the algorithm know by giving us a top rating or a review. It really helps us out. Thank you. And as ever, thank you for listening. See you again very soon.